This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm sitting here with Rebecca Traster. She's an author. She's a writer-at-large at New York Magazine. You may have seen her stuff at The Cut, which is also New York Magazine, so go to New York Magazine. It is, reader. so it's its own thing. You're also an L. You write many books. When I think of you, I think of gender. So <laughs> you're sort of your focus, right? Yes. You're an author yeah. and, and reporter, a journalist who focuses on gender and women specifically. Right? Yeah. I used to describe myself – I write about women in politics, media, and entertainment. You That's know, a the, better way than saying gender. Well, it's a lot of gender. It's a lot of race. It's yeah. it's class. I wrote a book about unmarried women, and it's about I, – I think in the past couple of years, journalistically, it's been a lot more about women in politics, in part because there was a presidential race. Heard and about then, that. Right. <laughs> so it's felt like it's more political, but – Historically, I was also writing about women in pop culture and sort of cultural criticism from a feminist perspective. I write from a feminist perspective. So I want to talk about all of that. And Mm -hmm. I also want to talk about Hillary Clinton. There's two great pieces about Hillary Clinton. You've written a bunch, um, but two sort of seminal ones. Uh, One was about a year ago. It was exactly a year. And one was a couple months ago now. or A month. month They were both published on Memorial Day weekend in 2016 and then 2017. By accident. It was coincidence. They were a year apart. Listen to the rest of the podcast and then go Google these pieces. They're great pieces. One of them I made sure that that Kara Swisher and Walt Mossberg read um, prior to interviewing Hillary at Code uh, a couple weeks ago. They did a great interview. It was a really interesting interview. So I want to start by talking about how you ended up on the Hillary Clinton beat. It just, I mean, I think you just spelled it out, right? It's just sort of a logical extension of what you were doing. Uh, Yeah, to some extent. So I started, uh, I was very lucky. I mean, you really want to go back a little bit? We can go go all the way back. But one of the important things about both these articles is that you got a lot of access to mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton, who well, famously that... doesn't like the press. And the most recent article, you you sort of had her first sort of major exit interview. Right. right. And that's it's, that's actually brings up an interesting thing about the evolution of my writing about Hillary Clinton. So how I wound up writing about uh-huh. Hillary Clinton, or then more largely women in politics, goes back actually to sort of 2003 and 2004 when I got a job at Salon.com, which at that point was not known totally for its reporting. And I'd come from the New York Observer where I started. It was one of the original sort of webby It was a webby. It was commentary. a lot of cultural criticism. There was great – Jake Tapper had been there as a political journalist. There was political reporting. But the job that I was hired for, I'd come from the New York Observer where I'd been a fact checker and I'd written about the film business. I, I was not writing about gender. Um, Didn't you get tossed out of an uh, event by Harvey Weinstein? I did. That, yeah. was the, that was the dramatic highlight of my, of my early journalistic life. And I was hired to write – what was for the life section of Salon. That was what you had used to be called Mothers Who Think. And it was sort of everything that didn't fall under the category of politics, business, movie, book criticism. It was it was a squishy category meant to say women's stuff, right? And at that point, 2003 and 2004, there was not a robust feminist media. Um, we forget that because we've na- we now have a feminist blogosphere, right? And a feminist media, but you know, major outlets have their own sort of feminist staff writers. That R- was not off, the case. Rattle off what feminist media means today in 2017. Well, when, today when it means I mean it. <laughs> it means that there are writers at every publication. Whether you're talking about Michelle Goldberg at Slate, whether you're talking about me and many of my colleagues at The Cut and at New York Magazine, Jezebel is a is a publication that was an offshoot of Gawker that publishes entirely content right. about women from a largely feminist perspective. The, those who are there now might disagree with my characterization of it, but that's certainly but historically w- what it's media, been. Media properties, websites, and then people whose beats within some of the broader websites or publications whose, whose job it is 
to write about women from a feminist perspective. It's, right, whether or not they the use case. the word feminist and whether right. they're, they're looking at gender and power. Uh, and, and I think you see that even in um, what we might consider straight political journalism at major publications more now than we did. So I, I'm but going... So that beat exists now. It didn't then. It certainly did not. It, it existed. Katha Pollitt was writing at The Nation and she had yeah. sort of written through. But there weren't... And Aria Levy, who was then writing at New York Magazine and is now at The New Yorker, was beginning to write pieces specifically from a feminist perspective. Um, but mostly that didn't exist. So when I went to Salon to do this sort of squishy category that was going to be about like sex and I don't know, kids and school, I, women's stuff, my, I, I came to it with a personal feminist perspective and interest in gender politics. My editors there shared that interest, but there'd just been no market for it for a long time. We were coming out of real backlash years in the United States where there was a tremendous anti-feminist backlash and that had gone very much out of fashion. I began to write some of my stories at Salon from a feminist perspective, but that was really at that period that was like, let's look at Britney Spears and Paris Hilton and Whitney Houston. From a, It was very pop culture oriented. I was really hired to do cultural criticism or cultural reporting to mm-hmm. the degree that it was reported. And that was... Which still thing. It is still a thing. (laughs) And um, then – and insofar as I wrote about presidential politics, I was writing about the the wives and daughters, Teresa Hines Carey in the 2004 election, the Carey daughters, the Bush daughters. And so in about 2006, my editor came to me and said, you're going to need to write a piece about Hillary Clinton. It looks like she's going to run for president. Now, after, you know, a decade of Hillary Clinton running for president – we're like, of course she's running for president. Yeah. She always runs for president. But at the time, it was like, really? And I was not a fan of Hillary Clinton. I was a critic of Hillary Clinton. I, my politics, I felt, were very much to the she left of hers. She was a senator. She was a senator yeah. from New York. It was 2006. It was ramping up. There was pressure on her to run. There had been pressure on her to run in 2004, and she hadn't done it. Um, in retrospect, she probably should have. But in 2006, my editor said, you're going to have to write a piece about this. I was very critical. I went to a lot. Of, and many of the feminists I was reporting on um, because I was also looking at sort of the the abortion politics, the what remained of an old-style feminist movement. And so I started to write about Hillary Clinton at that point um, pretty critically because there were a lot of feminists who were very critical of her. It was not the sort of, oh, we're going to have a woman running for president. She actually was not – Because she wasn't – liberal slash left slash feminist enough and maybe she was but at least publicly she didn't present that well she'd done a lot of contorting in the senate i mean this and this is the very long and complicated history of hillary clinton when she was first lady and when she'd come into the white house she was perceived as super left-wing feminazi radical which of course was never accurate to begin with that was a mischaracterization but then in order i mean there are all kinds of ways in which she sort of from doing her hair to to supporting some of her husband's um to my mind, worst policies, that she tried to fix that version of herself. And as a senator from New York, one of the things that she did, she did a lot um, sort of to sort of play well within the Senate. She really apprenticed herself to a lot of the old senior guys there and made them like her on both the right and the left. She made a lot of compromises, you know, got behind stuff around flag burning and violent video games that were sort of like, what? She voted, of course, to go to war in Iraq, um, as did many Democrats. Um, But she never sort of apologized. It took her a very long time to sort of say, I made a mistake and regret that. So there was a lot that those on the left really didn't like about Hillary Clinton going into a potential run in 2008. Um, And I started writing about that in 2006. I wrote a very long piece about many feminist questions about Hillary Clinton. So you were critical of her. Did did you come to her? Did you – over time, did you you go, I, I need to think this through? Did she send people to you? Were there emissaries? Oh, no, no. No. Oh, no, 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 no. No. 
Okay, until like, you know, 15 months ago. You had to come around to being appreciative of her. And at some point oh, you the became. Com- no, coming around to being appreciative of her, I actually did in the midst of the 2008 mm-hmm. race. Um, and it was in part because I found myself chronicling this incredible antipathy to her. And I'd I'd sort of, I'd been a teenager when she was first lady. I knew academically and I'd, I'd observed slightly, you know, how much hate had been directed at her from the right especially in the 1990s. And then um, I'd been part of the criticism leveled at her from the left. And in 2008, I went in, and I'm an opinion writer. I get to be an opinion writer and a reporter, so I get to talk yeah. about this stuff, and I've written about it extensively. I was a John Edwards supporter. His politics um, match mine. I'm very, very proud. <laughs> I obviously made the <laughs> the correct decision. <laughs> Edwards, oh, wait. <laughs> um, and when he dropped out, I wrote I, – and I was writing a lot about this. I was trying to get in touch with her campaign, but they didn't want to talk to me. I was a reporter and a writer at Salon. They didn't care. I was like 12. They didn't know who I was. I didn't write for the New yeah. York Times. And nobody ever returned my calls from the Clinton campaign in 08. The Clinton campaign in 08 was, was so uh, how, a disaster. So how do you end up on her radar? How do you end up with enough well, access that so you're on the trail? I wrote a book about uh-huh. the 2008 campaign and about my process of – Plug your um, book. That book's called – That book is called Big Girls Don't Cry. Good because there's two. There are two. Yeah, that was a t- 2010 book about the 2008 election. And that's that's Hillary. It's also Palin. It's Palin and it's, uh, and it's Michelle Obama. Mm-hmm. It's about the sort of intersections of gender, race, class, and how those all played into how America received these three historic women, all of whom were playing unprecedented roles. And in it, I it's not about me, but I do chronicle the evolution of my um, reaction to all of them. And so sh- certainly people on her team – knew about that book. And they also knew at a certain point about the writing that I was doing, which was very much from outside. I was not a political reporter in 2008. I was writing opinion journalism. And to the degree that I was reporting, I was reporting from the margins on how people were, um, how the media was was behaving in reaction to these sort of historic candidates, how um, supporters were behaving, how they were treating each other, the ways that gendered, racialized, racist, classist language was being deployed between you know, supporters of of opponents. And so they knew about that. And then um, when it came time in 20, I I can be, I'd written the book and I'd continued to write about her sort of ramping up into what seemed increasingly likely to be her next run in 2016. But then I really had to knock on the door of the campaign every day for. And that's starting when? I mean, 2015, the day she. And and how (laughs) do you think you got that at? Because again, she was despised the press, the wrong word. No, I think that's the right word. Despises the right. press. She has a lot of reason to be wary of the press, mm-hmm. not naturally sort of charismatic with the press. How do you get – so again, if you, you guys will go and read this story if you haven't read it. But you, you are with her on the trail. You're, you've got you know several intimate moments with her. This is a year ago and again now. How do you get that entree? How do you negotiate for it? And why is it you instead of, I don't know, Amy Chozik at the Times, whose job it is to write about her every day and, and I think has a relationship with that family as well? Well, I can only venture a guess on this based on what I sense happened uh-huh. within the campaign. Because of my writing in 2008, which was pretty widely read you know, by people who cared about Hillary Clinton, who cared about politics, and I, I mean – like to think that it's pretty nuanced and smart about the various complicated dynamics and a lot of the history in play, right? One of the things I'm very interested in my writing is making sure we put things in historic context. Right. It doesn't just happen. Right. And that's and I think that's very hard to do for a lot of reporters writing with short spaces and for a quick contemporary audience. I have a luxury that a lot of writers don't get to do. I also get to have my voice in there a lot more than straight reporters like yep. Amy Chozik 
gets to do. I mean, I, I have a very lucky kind of job where I get to write at length and with a lot of detail and with nuance, and I get to say what I think at the same time that I get to report. And that means that I um, get to write a different kind of thing. And so I think that a lot of some of the young people who worked on her campaign, maybe some of the older ones, but I really only knew the sort of junior yeah. people, had liked and thought that I was smart about the history of Hillary Clinton and the sort of way she fit into the story of the United States and its progress and regress when it comes to gender and and race and, and progressivism in general. And so I think there were people within the campaign who were advocating that she talk to me. I mean, that's certainly part of what I was hearing mm-hmm. is that there were people, not her tight higher ups, who I still to this day don't know, though I've now met some of them more, but that a lot of the more junior people um, we're saying, I think you should talk to Rebecca Traister. This is my, this is what I'm so, guessing. So it bubbles up. It bubbles up. At some and point, it took still a long get through time. The I mean, I was asking in 2015. I was saying, please let me spend time with her. I was making very direct arguments about. Um, so you're hearing people in the lower rungs of the campaign saying, "We're we're making the pitch well, for not, you." I don't want to. I don't want to undersell them as super no, but, lower. But, but yeah. it's not Huma. Right? No, and it's no, not Bill, no, right? No. So, so, but so, people below them in the org chart mm-hmm. are pitching on your behalf. Yes. Are you mailing notes? Are you? Not, I am calling them calling every day. Them. I mean, probably not literally every yeah. day, but I am calling them multiple times a week, saying, "How about now? How about now? How and about then, now? What, is now a good time to talk to her?" And what tips the scale? I don't know. Well, uh, this is people people saying it was toward the end of the primary that she finally. They, they finally said, okay, we're going to do this. And you get and do you meet with her before you start doing the reporting or you just show up one day and you're, you're trailing her? Uh, I show up one day as part of the press pool, which has very little access to her, is kept very distant from her. Literally roped off. Yeah. I mean, when I was there, there wasn't a literal rope, but, but there, there was, was a literal a, bus that was separate from her literal bus. there was a rope line at one bus. point in the campaign. Yeah, yeah and it's yeah. just a different bus. And <laughs> yeah. She does not, she's not pretending to be glad-handing with the press. No. Yeah. No. And so there were a, there was a period where I did that, where I was with um, the traveling press. And then there were a couple days. This is all from 2016. So mm-hmm. it's the end of her primary against Bernie Sanders. Then there were a couple of days that I had a different kind of access where it wasn't sitting down for lengthy interviews, but it was getting to be near her as she walked in. Instead of – I got to – be sort of next to her as she and, walked and, and, into and events. Have you been, approved, was have you been approved at this point, or yes, you're still yes. earning your? Oh no! At the, this point, there was there had been a decision made that okay, Rebecca Tracer is going to do this piece, and so she's got to get her access. And you know that this is you are getting something extraordinary that no one else has yet. And I'm are, trying to think. It's yeah. not that nobody else. Ruby Kramer had written a terrific piece okay. um, at that point for BuzzFeed, where she'd obviously had access to Hillary Clinton. Um, lots of the other people had had some access for direct interviews. I know that I'm re- writing a different kind of piece has been written. And so I guess to that degree, I knew I was, and, and I did know I was getting something that I was pretty pleased to be getting. I'm just getting deep in the sausage making because people don't normally get to see this stuff. It's interesting to me. So mm-hmm. hopefully to the listeners, when you go to them and you say, I want to do this, this is my proposal. I would like this kind of access. Are you saying, and by the way, I'm either going to promise not to write this sort of thing, or do you? No, I made no promises. Do you suggest, I mean, so you're not dumb enough. Sorry, that's the wrong phrasing. <laughs> I might be dumb enough, but I know. You're not going to say you're not going to say I will not write this thing. But no. you also there's another way of saying I'm interested in this kind of because what they want to know oh, is yeah. is this going to be a hit piece? Oh, sh- oh and sure. You wanna, and no, you, I was and, not telling them this is going to be a hit piece. And <laughs> without saying I'm not going to stab you in the back. No, I can tell you exactly the yeah. pitch that I made. Okay. I mean, I'm not shy, I'm not shy. About how that. do you give them reassurance that in addition to seeing your work that 
they can't guarantee that they're going to get the kind of peace they want. But they also have some comfort level with you. Well, I think the comfort level in part is based on the work and what I – the way I always – You've seen what I do. You've seen what I do. I had written at that point literally a book about Hillary Clinton. Also, I mean I I can't imagine but 24, 30, you know – 2,000 word or more pieces about her. There is no secret about Mm -hmm. my evolving feelings about Hillary Clinton, about my criticisms of Hillary Clinton. They were always very aware because I had historically criticized her from the left because even in my contemporary writing about her going into 2016, I'd expressed some ambivalence about her. I'd written a piece for Elle that was about my ambivalence. Lengthy paper trail. Lengthy paper trail. And also a piece for the New Republic, by the way, urging both Elizabeth Warren and Kirsten Gillibrand to run against her. I mean, this was not, uh, you know, I, I, I have been both open about what became my support for her in 08 and about my ambivalence of her about her going into 2016. There's no secrets about and that was one of the things I said, like, look, you're not getting any surprises from me. I have I have written oceans on Hillary Clinton. But I also made very clear that the piece I wanted to write was putting her in the context of American history. There was no promise about it's going to be good or it's going to be yeah. bad ever, of course. It was – but what I did say is, look, I think this is a crucial historic moment and I don't actually think that there – I thought there would be more coverage in the press that made careful note of that, that tried to position this, this first woman nominated by a major party who's going to run in the general election, the first woman in a 51 percent female nation that purports to be a representative democracy – in 230 years, I thought there was going to be more sort of historicizing this moment. Yeah. And there there hadn't been at that point. I'm going to give this the treatment it deserves. I'm going to, What I'm going to do is try to put her in the yeah. story of America. So that wins them over in the pitch. That was what they were signing on for. Um, and then you, you There was no further. You, and then I was like, I got to see what she gives right. me before I can, you know. Then you progress from the bus the bus to being, to, near to being near her, which was actually, I sort of at first rolled my eyes when they were like, oh, then you'll have a few days where you're backstage. And I was like, great. In fact, great stuff, that right? was the most elucidating. That was the best stuff. And I was so naive to not understand that that because, was the best kind of access. And spell out why that's the best access. Because what I saw was a thing that you never see when you're in the crowd and that because of the distance that the press was often kept, that the press didn't get to see unless they were backstage with her, which was her doing the business of retail politics. It was shocking to me. I had no idea. I, I'd sort of accepted, because she's not the easiest or most elegant or most charismatic speaker we know all about, and I've written about the sort of stuff about how she speaks, especially compared to Barack right. Obama, compared to Bill Clinton. But watching her go through the halls, greeting people, shaking hands, remembering names, talking to kids, hugging babies. So you get to see her so doing smooth. the work that isn't captured on camera. Exactly. And that everyone says, she, everyone says she's great in the room. And it's also, I imagine, you get to see her doing her actual work and interactions with her aides. And, yes, and I get to see her interacting with her She knows she's staff. being observed, but it's also different than you sitting across from a table from her with a microphone or a, or a recording device where she knows, all right, now this is an interview. I'm going to switch right. into interview mode. So it's that sort of near slash middle distance that's a sort of sweet spot for that stuff. Yes, and it was, and it was extremely naive of me to have ever doubted that that was the best kind of access. That was the best. Um, and then and eventually you, you were granted Well, eventually it was always you're going to get the interview. And the interview um, that we had in 2016 was at one of these events where I'd been having a day where I was backstage with her. And then it was like, we're going to do it at some point today. And I, I knew it was going to be that day. I had my printed piece of paper. I was terrified, you know, all of it. And then they said, OK, we're going to do it after the speech. And we wound up, we were in a school gym in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And so they did it. And they said, we're going to go into the locker room. 
And we sat in the locker room where there was a weird couch. Yeah, which was, you said it smelled bad. It did smell terrible. But um, <laughs> I was trying to imagine what it smelled I still like. remember. It was like, woof. Um, and that interview was 40 minutes. That leads to great story number one. You've done other great stuff in between that. Great story number two is post-election. Mm-hmm. Same sort of approach? Or she, totally she's seen different. the piece. She to- totally she, different. Uh, well, I should also say that I was pushing to do another piece. I didn't want that one story in 2016 to be my only mm-hmm. story with access to Hillary Clinton. I mean, I was I was desperate to, to do another big piece on her with access and with an interview in the weeks leading up to the election. And I was pressing for it and I was not succeeding. I mean, there's, it's interesting because, you know, when people have criticized my approach and this happens quite a bit on social media and there's this assumption that because I have written positively about her that I'm like, you know, working for the campaign or whatever. Uh-huh. I was like, oh, man, if you knew, <laughs> you knew the amount of daily agita about just let me have her for five minutes. Let me have her. No, I couldn't get her again. The weekend before the election, I was writing a very big piece. Because I thought it was a possibility. I was never I was never one of those people who thought she was definitely going to win. Never. But I certainly thought there was a possibility that on a Tuesday we were going to be electing the first woman president. Mm-hmm. And this was this is my job. Right. So you wanted the this big heat that said this is – it'd be, it'd be irresponsible not to have written that piece. I was working on that piece. Means. It seemed – I mean and look, to say that I wasn't sure she was going to win, all signs were pointing toward the fact that she was going to. And right. so though I wasn't sure about it and I was terrified, I also felt quite – you know, there, there, more than a chance. Like there was a good possibility that I was going to have to write a cover story that I wanted to write a cover story about we've just elected the first woman president. Right. So I'd been doing a lot of reporting on a very long feature for weeks leading up to that, to, to the election. And I had managed, I'd gotten, I, I traveled with the press again in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania the weekend before the election. I was at that, the rally the night before I'd been with the bus. And I actually did my only, my only moment that has ever approached um any kind of sort of gonzo, I'm just going for this journalism, yeah. was getting off the bus the Sunday before the election. I was traveling with the press. I was desperate to interview her and um, wasn't getting anywhere with the campaign. And I had to go home and I, I got off the press bus in Philadelphia. And then I noticed that a bunch of vans were le- leaving separately. And I just got into one. <laughs> I just was like, I knew it was somebody in the campaign, and I just got into one. And it was Dan Schwerin, who was, a, who was her speechwriter, and Jen Palmieri. And I'd never dealt with Jen Palmieri, actually. All the, and she was the top communicator. I'd never she sort of sat You just forced your way onto their van. I got on their van. Her Nick Merrill, her press person, sort of looked and was like, Rebecca Tracer's in your van. I mean, there was a sort of like, I was stranded in a parking lot with a bag. What were they going to do? And so I tried to talk them into... Let me talk to her. Still nothing. Let me talk to her. No, that that was yeah. – <laughs> I got a vague, not promise, but suggestion that maybe on Wednesday – because I was writing for New York Magazine, which would close on Friday, that maybe the day after Election Day um, I could talk to her for yeah. a few minutes. So I was hopeful that that was going to happen. That did not happen. Right. So that does not happen. Does and not then, happen. And then so at what point do you go to her and that team and say, I want the first significant story post-election. And then well, it's months afterwards. I should be really clear that I didn't say I want the first. No, but I, I of want Of course, the I story. did want the first, right. but that's never how I approached it. Because I had written so much about her, I was in touch at that point after the election with a lot of people who I hadn't been in regular touch with. There were some people on her campaign, you know, reached out to me to talk. A lot of people who were themselves, I think, shocked 
by her loss and also still processing some of the stuff that they felt they'd learned during the campaign working for her. A lot of it about gender and a lot of it about other stuff, a lot of it about sexism, what they perceived to be the double standards that they'd been working through and then culminating with this loss, which is not to say that these were people who were saying it was just because of sexism. I'm not being that reductive and neither were they. But they wanted to talk to somebody who'd done some extensive writing on this. And so I actually was in touch with a couple of people who said, I just want to talk to you about this stuff and like what just happened and what I'm thinking and what, you know, and of course I um, spoke with some of them. And during those conversations, a lot of them actually had questions for me about the press, which was why hasn't anybody written in depth about the gender dynamics of this since the loss? And and it's not that nobody had. Rebecca Solnit wrote a terrific piece. There, there were people who'd yep. been writing about sexism, but not this sort of very long treatment of how gender worked, not just even the – it was sexism. Again, I really want to avoid this sort of reductive – monocausal explanation. But, but the, also in part, right, because one of the reasons they weren't writing about it was because the narrative immediately switched to it's this poor, overlooked, white, working right. class. We have to go to Appalachia. And you can debate whether or not that actually is what tipped the election or it's, it's the Obama voters in right. Michigan who tipped over. And, and gender sort of went out the door as something people wanted to talk about. They may not have wanted to talk about it to begin with. Right. But so this is my, my view on this. And in this case, I'm only representing my view, uh-huh. um, not the view of anybody, uh, any of these people I was talking to at the time, is that nobody in America wants to talk about sexism or racism as a contemporary thing. We're only comfortable talking about them when we can safely put them in our past. So we could talk about race around Obama because he won. And then we could tell a story, a happy story about race moving forward. There was an aversion during Hillary's candidacy to talking about sexism. And I think that aversion came from both the right and the left because nobody wanted to make it simple. There's a perception that if you talk about... And the, and the campaign, right? Oh, sure. Well, the campaign was mixed on this. The campaign was very mixed on this. She specifically didn't run as the woman... Right. You don't. In 08, it was like Mark Penn told her right. nobody wants a first mama, but they would take a first papa who's a woman. I mean, it was so yeah. confused, like gender stuff in 08. So in 2016, they were much more willing to and eager to run Hillary as uh, the first woman yeah. and as a historic figure. But they were also anxious because there had been that campaign talked to women very early on who said, don't emphasize the historic nature. And this is women who said, don't emphasize the historic nature of her gender and the fact that she'd be the first woman for two reasons. One, I think men are going to be repelled by that. And two, I don't want to see them to see me as this as this totally feminized, as my affiliation for her as feminized. And it's very interesting. I mean, th- and that is something to really pick apart. That is not as simple as like when people have these conversations about like, was it sexism or was it because she was a woman? Like, we don't even get to something like that where you really have to pick off the layers of like, these are women saying, I don't think you should do that strategically Mm -hmm. because men are not going to like it and they're going to see me differently. That an investment in electing a woman president, a woman with whom you agree ideologically, politically, um, or on policy issues, I don't want to have feminine stink on me. (laughs) And and like as you say, we're several layers down, right? And at the top, we're back to – she's running against Donald Trump. Right. So a lot of this and and we we'll get to this eventually, but you know, there's still a discussion of what kind of candidate she was, et cetera. Yeah. But I mean, it's not unnatural for the media to be almost entirely focused on Trump because it's we've never seen anything like this. Right. It's certainly not a successful version of it. Right. Well, and my attitude about Trump was always that he wasn't she didn't win him in a lottery. Like it's not an accident that 
the Republican candidate to run after two terms of Barack Obama against, against Hillary Clinton is a man who ran a campaign rooted in part on open calls to racism, misogyny, xenophobia, right? This is not, Donald Trump is not some quirk of nature that, oh, and people treat him that way still. They say, oh, she lost to Donald Trump. I mean, like anybody could have beaten Donald Trump without acknowledging that America created Donald Trump because he is the specter of the reaction, not just to Hillary Clinton, but to Barack Obama, to a sense, I mean, a lot of that stuff, Donald Trump was summoned to fight Hillary Clinton, <laughs> and he did, effectively, because that's a big part of what America wants. <laughs> Rebecca, I said we were going to go half an hour. We're going to go way longer than that's that. Okay. So we should I'm stop right. right now okay. for a brief word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Today's show is brought to you by TransferWise. You've sent money internationally. If you do, you know it's expensive, it's time-consuming, and the exchange rate you get from your bank or provider can be lousy. The next time you need to make an international money transfer, you should use TransferWise. They give you a great exchange rate, so your money goes much further. You pay one small upfront fee, that's it. It's easy to do. So you know exactly what you're going to pay, you know the exact exchange rate, there's no markup. TransferWise is founded by two friends who were immigrants from Estonia. They needed to send money back home and they kept getting ripped off. So they figured out a quicker, cheaper, better way to do this. That's when they realized this could be a company too. Today, TransferWise lets millions of people and businesses all over the world send money internationally. See how much you could save at TransferWise.com. There's an app for Android or for iOS. Once again, that's TransferWise, W-I-S-E dot com. Transfer like I need to transfer money to someone who does not live in this country. Wise as in I'm very smart. TransferWise.com. We're back here with Rebecca Traster. We were deep into the history of the 2016 election. And by the way, it's I think it's relevant to be talking about this now. First of all, we should talk about it for a long time because it's historic. Um, Also, because I don't think people have gotten their heads around what happened in the fall of last year. And and this is a media podcast. I mean, we should talk a bit about how the media has covered that election, how they're covering it now, how they're covering Hillary Clinton now, who's still relevant. Mm -hmm. Um, We were talking about how you got into the second piece you wrote for right. the New so York the Magazine. Right, so the second piece stemmed... New York Magazine. For New York Magazine that came out recently, which you should read. The second piece stemmed from these conversations I was having with people around the campaign that were really not... I mean, let me tell you, personally, at about 8.45 on November 8th at the Javits Center, I knew that I would need to write a post-election profile, hopefully with a lot of access to Hillary Clinton, whether or not it wound up getting to be the first or the, right. you know, I knew that that was my job here in 2016 would not be done until that piece or one like it was done. So I knew that that's something I wanted. But this was not a case where like on November 9th, I called the campaign. On November 9th, I was scrambling to rewrite the piece that I wound up writing about the election. And and I was, you know, like many in shock. people in horror for a long time. I mean, I, there, there are stretches of the fall that I don't really remember clearly. Yeah. So um, I was, it was not a case of being on the phone this time, like every day through December and January. Right. It was sort of in the new year that I started to talk to people. We started to talk about how there hadn't been coverage of gender and how the role that it played, why there hadn't been in-depth coverage of this. And in those conversations, I said, obviously, this is a piece I want to write. Now, I was a person in this case who was saying something that reporters don't usually say, which is, I don't want to write it now. And I was saying that to the people who— You're saying this to Team Hillary? Yeah. 
And again, I, it's, this is not like me on the phone with Jen Palmieri. This is me. I was not, in fact, on the phone with Jen Palmieri at any point ever. This is me talking to the, some people, some of whom had come to me, um, some of whom I'd bumped into and who were saying to me, I don't understand why there hasn't been this coverage. And I was agreeing and t- we were talking about it. And I was giving my perspective as somebody who has written about also even Hillary Clinton in loss before that I thought that there are periods where these things are still so fresh when you want to go back and look at some of the dynamics involved, where it's so fresh that you can't see it clearly. And my guess in like, I don't know, January, February, was that it wouldn't be until at least the spring. So you say to them, give me some time. Let me come to Yeah. Although in this case, again, it's not even that mercenary. What I was saying is I'm going to write this piece. And I would like, obviously like to talk to her about it. But it needs to marinate. Not even marinate. I said, I have a file open, and this is true. I had a file open on my desk. That was true since November, where I was putting my thoughts about post, about gender. And again, this was not based on, oh, I'm going to get a long interview or lots of access to Hillary Clinton. It was, I'm going to need to write a piece down the road, and I want to remember what I was thinking at these various junctures. And I just kept a Word document open on my computer for all those months where I would put paragraphs or thoughts or references or links to stories or whatever. And that that was open. And I, I told people who I knew were vaguely in her orbit. Of course, there was no formal campaign structure at that point. So a lot of these people didn't necessarily have any contact with yep. her anymore. But but who I knew, I said, I am planning to write this piece. I will write this piece. I probably am not going to do it till the spring. I have to wait and see when the moment seems to be the right moment when people can begin to hear it. And that was, and I knew that from my experience in 2008. After, at the end of the primary, when she finally dropped out after having stayed in through the entire primary, there was so much acrimony. We don't even remember. It was so, in some ways, it was so much more bitter than even the Hillary Bernie stuff, although that has turned yeah. out to be much more long lasting. But the Hillary Obama stuff was so acrimonious and so torn and so divided. And at the time, I remember somebody said to me, are you going to write a book about her candidacy? And this was in the spring of 2008. And I said, no, nobody's ever going to want to hear the name Hillary Clinton again. Like, she was so vilified. Uh, Anybody who supported her was pretty vilified. And it was – but about six months later, when when McCain had picked Palin – and tempers had cooled, suddenly people were able to say, like, wait, a lot of what – we love Obama and we're excited he's the nominee. But a lot of the intensity with which we hated Hillary seems weird now. Like, there was this perspective that then people were like, oh, maybe we can talk about this now. And that's when I decided to write a book. And by the time it was published in 2010, people were very weirdly (laughs) suddenly very eager again to look backwards and say, oh, what we did there – that was kind of fucked up, right? Like the the not that we picked Obama. Right. That's terrific. But, so that so I thought that this, this time is, this has to sit six months. Maybe we'll be ready to talk about it. And you know, then at some point I began making more formal requests. I guess March. I think March was when I said, "Okay, are we going to do this? I really want to be able to talk to her for this. I'm writing this piece. I'm going to write it. I'm, again, there were no specifics about timing. It was like I'm going to write it in the next couple months. Can we talk about?" me getting some access to her. And at some point I got a yes, she would like to talk to you for this piece. And again, you sort of realize it's her first. Did I imagine that you talked to her in her bathrobe at some point? Is she walking around? Her bathrobe? No, I never talked to her in her bathrobe. But But there is a story. In repose, she's sort of, her guard is down, she's wearing less makeup. Oh, well that was the very end of the process. So again, what I got as she began to travel and give speeches, which was really, I mean, she sort of emerged, she gave a couple speeches right after the election was sort of no makeup and right. everything. It was a r- tremendous, you know, the Marion Wright Edelman award and everything. But then she'd been a little bit underground. 
And starting walking in the woods. In the woods. Starting in March, she began to do some traveling to give bigger addresses. There was one at Georgetown, the Institute on Peace at Georgetown, Milan Verveer's Institute. Um, There was a Texas speech that she gave. Um, There was a Girls Inc. speech in New York City, a Planned Parenthood, a Ms. Foundation. There were a lot of, and, and so at first it was that sort of access, the kind of backstage access. There was no mm-hmm. traveling press with her at that point. Right. So um, it was getting to be with her at these events, which was, again, tremendous access. And that was over the period of, I think it started in March, and it was through April and through May. And through all of this, I kept saying, and then we're going to need to do a real interview. We're going to need to do a real interview. Yes, yes, yes. But that didn't happen until 10 days before the piece ran. So you get that piece. It's a great piece. Again, go read it. I give it to Walt and Kara. I say, you guys are going to interview Hillary in a couple of weeks or days. You should read it. They did. And I've been dying to ask you about this ever since mm-hmm. the interview because you are, you are the most informed Hillary person I know. Walt and Kara do – and Hillary do this I'm, – I'm biased, but I'm also correct. I think it's a really good interview. It was good. The beginning of the interview, Walt says, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. I want you to tell me one thing you think you did wrong during the campaign. And I haven't talked to Walt precisely about this, but I can't imagine that she hadn't heard this was going to come up, that they hadn't prepped for some reason. She refuses to acknowledge that she's done anything wrong. Mm -hmm. And then because it's the first question and she hasn't really answered it, they have to go around a couple more times, two or three times. And Mm -hmm. I I can't even remember how she gets out of it. But it seems like the kind of thing that if you are a professional politician or even just someone who gets interviewed professionally, you would – have some sort of response ready, either a real answer or a joke answer about eating cheese curds and Racine or something. Why do you think that she she's so insistent on not admitting fault? Well, I think a couple things. First of all, and these are some of these are just guesses uh-huh. and sort of armchair psychology about a person but who I've done a guesses. lot of writing. Yeah, and, yeah I've, I've really thought about her for ten years. So. Uh, <laughs> I think the first most practical and fact-based reason for this is she's writing this book. And I think that the fact that she's given lengthy interviews to Karen Walt, to me, has – I think she's probably – this is a guess. I don't know what's in the book – is waiting to do some of that in the book and have that be the part Mm -hmm. of the break of the book, right? That's one guess. So some good stuff, but you're not going to get it yet. But you're not going to get this. The second guess is a pretty well-informed guess. What you just said is like, okay, you're a professional politician. This is one of the first times in 25 years that Hillary Clinton has not had to be a professional politician. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was a viral video that went around before the election of 25 years of Hillary being asked the same question, which was, can you talk about the fact that you're hated? Why do you think people hate you so much? Uh, do you remember that video? Yeah. I don't remember who but produced it. But I can it. imagine. But it was, it was going from like Katie Couric on the Today Show. It was going from Arkansas. There was some mm-hmm. footage from the 80s in Arkansas of somebody being like, the people of Arkansas are just wondering, what do you think is wrong with you? Yeah. When I wrote my piece, I actually went back and looked up the number of times that the question, not just sort of, oh, we obsess about Hillary, but that the question of whether or not Hillary Clinton has apologized has been its own meta news story. Sure. Not just did she apologize, but how did she apologize, right? The most recent was over the server, and there was a piece in the New York Times that was like getting to sorry. And it was a TikTok of how we got Hillary Clinton to apologize for the server. I went back when I was writing my piece. And by the way, that was her first response when asked was, well, I didn't realize how unfairly I'd be treated over the server. Not I screwed up with the server. It was 
I was treated poor. Like when asked, what did you do wrong? It was, I was treated badly. Right, right. So, but looking back at, and I'm trying to remember now, I had, when I got them counted, there were like 10 individual instances. The big ones, server, Iraq war vote, which I've already mentioned in this interview that she Mm -hmm. didn't apologize for the Iraq war vote. Tammy Wynette from when she said something bad about Tammy Wynette. When she ran for the Senate in 2000 on the trail, they were at a diner and one of her aides didn't tip a waitress. And there was a story about how it took two days for Hillary to apologize for that. There was a thing after health care in the 90s failed when she t- said to her staff, again, a kind of non she said to her staff, I'm really sorry this that this didn't work. And there was a piece criticizing her for weakness for saying, I'm sorry, she shouldn't have apologized and women shouldn't apologize. The This is not a defense. I'm just putting it in mm-hmm. context. The degree to which Hillary Clinton's willingness, her willingness to say, I fucked up, I'm sorry, I to, and to sort of self-flagellate, has been an object of media fetishization for a quarter century. There's some degree to which I am guessing, first of all, I don't think she's great at it. I don't think, you're, mm-hmm. you're right. Her, She's acutely aware of the fact that this has been a fetish, a fetish, and she's also acutely aware of the fact that she has been ill-treated by the press for decades, which is rooted in truth, right? Whether or not you think she should be so defensive and, and aware of it is another question. And I think this is a point where she's like, I don't have to do this anymore. Right. So that was Kara's theory. Was like, I don't want to grovel. Yeah, I don't I'm think... Not gonna I give, I'm not going to give you guys the satisfaction of watching me apologize. Right. I don't... Th- I completely... Ag- I, that is my best guess. I do not think... I think in her view... It has been 25 years of people saying, tell us again why you're bad. Tell us again why you're bad. Tell us why people didn't like you. People just didn't like you enough. One of the most amazing descriptions of her, and was it after the Rico? No, it was before because it was in my story. And I think, I hope I don't get this wrong. I think it was David Gregory who, after she'd given the Christiane Amanpour interview, where she had said, she said, look, I take responsibility. I was the candidate. It was my campaign, but I'm not going to detail. And then she said, but I would have won except for the Comey hearing. And then she also said, and I'm not like, I think she said I'm saving it for my my book, but I'm not going to slide. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to run through the individual, like the specific reasons why I was I will never say anything other than positive things about my campaign. She told you. That's for me. Yeah. Yeah. But after that, there was a, this while I was reporting the story, there was just a heap of criticism that came her way. Right. You know, she doesn't take responsibility. Right. She we, were, would, we were worried in the wake of that that it, for the code interview that she would clam up because she'd been so pounded. After yes. The, well, after she that did. I, I, and, you know, we can talk about this. I think that there was – she did clam up a little bit because it was so brutal. But one of the best locutions – and I don't know if I'll cite it exactly correctly. But I think it was David Gregory whose criticism of her – was she hasn't taken responsibility for the fact that she was not what America wanted, uh-huh. right? So like, this is, I think there's a point where it's like, you have it. Yeah. And again, I don't mean to defend here, right? It is frustrating. And there is this thing where it's like, could you just say it? Could you just, could you just? Well, just deflate the balloon. That's what I'm saying. You don't, you don't have to do a full, you don't, you don't have to do a full flagellation. Just, just make a right. joke just so, because they can move on. Right, Because, right. and this is what I was getting to, is that the rest of the, her presentation was very well thought through. It, she was speaking candidly, but also she thought a lot about it. She clearly wanted to focus on Russia, mm-hmm. very detailed. And by not letting them move on from that first question, she 
she detracted from the rest of that interview, I think. Yeah. And, and left it. Started I, I think off. it would be smarter to, for yeah. her. We, we, we all here agree. In <laughs> to do a little like, here's this, this, this. But I also think that it is very hard for any of us to conceive of what it might feel like to have truly been asked for 25 years over and over again in a million instances, tell us everything bad about yourself. Yep. <laughs> and especially if she, if you believe, and she truly does, and this is really important, she's not alone in, in this, right? She does believe that she would have won if it weren't for the Comey letter. She does believe that we've experienced an attack, an aggressive attack by Russia on our democracy. And she does think I, you know, she won the popular vote by three million. So I think, again, just trying to imagine those circumstances, which must feel if you're the candidate and these are the circumstances you're looking at and then what everybody wants to know from you is tell me again your list, your failures and please be specific. I think she's just at this point where she's like, I don't have to do this anymore. Do you think the next significant woman or woman candidate, female candidate for that for president will be treated significantly differently yes. than her? Yes. So some of this is – is that because she was the first or it's because she's Hillary Clinton and there's baggage She's Hillary Clinton because she's the first. Okay. So there's no way to separate – one of the one of the things that everybody always like to say is it's not about – because she's a woman. It's because she's that woman. Um, but, you know, she's that woman and she has the baggage that she has. And this includes like her – how she behaved during her husband's administration, the various ways that she was attacked during it and the ways she responded, how she behaved in the Senate. You know, she is an incredible figure, historically speaking. Her life bridges this massive shift in possibility for women and especially white middle-class women. And so much of her life from her marriage, her career, she was often anomalous and and the first woman or the second woman in very male worlds. And you cannot live that life. And for Hillary Clinton, it was extremely high powered, right? These are, it's, you know, the legal services corporation, it's the, it's law firms, it's yep. the University of Arkansas, it's in the Senate, it's as a first lady, the first first lady who was sort of an, who had a career outside of her husband's, all that. You can't live that life and not be shaped by it. So her baggage, and and again, it doesn't excuse right. it, is shaped by her firstness. So we're, she's done a lot of the work of having been the first woman president without ever having been president. So when the next person steps up. Yeah, which I assume will be in 2020. Uh, do you think that the press will actively sort of think through, all right, we, we, we got this part wrong. We, we did this part wrong in the way we covered or didn't cover gender. Or do you think that a lot of what they did is baked into who they are and how they write, write and cover things? Well, they did. About and it's yes things. and no because they, they acted very – the press behaved very differently in 2016 toward Hillary than they did in, tw in 2008. It was – in 2008, if you go back and look at the clips, your jaw will hang open. It was people just easily talking about how – you know, John. well, not even the press. John Edwards making a joke about her jacket in a debate. And then complimenting her on her husband's policies. I mean, that was like, I, I look at that now and I'm like, did that happen? It was NPR producers comparing her to Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction. It was, um, you know. So they've shaped up. They, they, they were Trump, terrible and also, in a way. And also Trump did in all that for them this time it was an entirely different thing. They got rid of, they cleaned up a lot of that very obvious like witch, bitch, ex-wife, carping stuff. And 
but it was more subtle. There was a there wasn't an eagerness to address the fact that she had um, that she was different from other candidates. There wasn't an eagerness to actually dive into the kind of historical obstacles that she was up against. There was a willingness to accept a lot of narratives about her that weren't necessarily false, but that were a lot more complicated than that than the ones that were presented. And it was a very different kind of bias. And it was there. Um, there was there was also the impulse, and this is a real debate to be had, to treat Clinton and Trump as sort of give them equal challenge, equal criticism. And like that that's the, that's yeah. the sign of journalistic fairness and objectivity is where we're being equally hard on them. Well, that's a weird proposition when you're talking about Donald Trump, who is a political novice and who is Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton, who's been under the, a spotlight, a press spotlight, for, which doesn't mean give her a free ride, but it does mean like, do they, do they actually merit the same level of investigation and doubt when it comes to how we evaluate them as presidential candidates? There are those kinds of questions. Now, now, the next woman who runs, first of all, I hope there will be more than one the next round. I hope we see a primary where we have multiple women running against each other, presumably on both sides. Well, I guess we won't, barring some craziness. That'd they'll be, be just very Trump. crazy, yeah. Well, somebody could primary him, you know, and that wouldn't be stupid. But we'll see. But I hope on the Democratic side, we see multiple women. That's also what I wanted this time. Because I think the burden of being only, of being singular, is part of what gets us to a lot of these challenges. And that if we normalize the idea that women can run for president just like men, including against each other on the same side and with similar politics, which is what happens in primaries, that it's going to ease some of this. But we've never had a woman president. It's crazy we don't think about this every day, you know? We've never had a black woman governor. There are things I just want to like everybody to wake up every morning. Until Kamala Harris, only one black woman in the history of the United States had ever served in the Senate. And now two, okay? So this is these are things that we can't just say, oh, it's going to go away. I wanted to ask you some, about something. I'm sorry to interrupt. But, mm. but this, something I wanted to ask you about the work you do in general, right? So when you point out that we've only had one black woman senator prior to Kamala Harris, I know there are a lot of people, and a lot of them are well-meaning, who say, why do you have to focus on race and gender? Why do you have to make that a thing? Why can't I just like that person or not like that person? And I would assume that you probably get some of those questions about your work. Why are you sure. focusing specifically on gender? Why not just write about media or politics? What's your response when you get that question? Well, there's no way to write about American politics without writing about race and gender. Mm -hmm. So when, when somebody says, why can't It's one thing to say I... it's in there. It's another thing to say, I'm going to focus on it. And I'm going to well, focus this piece or I'm going to focus my life's work on the it. The practical response, speaking personally, is that that has been my interest, is the way that gender dynamics and then you can't do gender dynamics without also talking about race dynamics, you know, economic mm -hmm. inequality, has shaped American culture, society, politics, I can't, the history of the United States is a history of gender and racial inequality, right? You can't, to me, it is impossible to say, can we just leave these things out? The country's built on them. But there's but, two versions of that, right? One version of that question is a well-meaning, come on, right. aren't we past that or aren't things better? There's another version, which is cynical, right? Which is Barack Obama made race relations worse. And the people who are saying that, at least the, at the Fox News level, don't actually believe it, right? right. They just know it's a, right. it's red meat. But I do think there's a big swath of the population that, that isn't craven, that has believed some version of that. And when they hear that you're, you focus on gender, they're not going to talk to you. <laughs> but you, you get what I'm getting at, right? That this sure. Is a, I assume that even among the readers of New York Magazine, there might be people saying, well, why, why make this the focus? Right. And I don't assume that that response is craven or malevolent or Ill, in any way ill-intentioned. I do think that this is one of the 
one of the reasons I do the job I do is because I think the far easier and thus more commonly shared experience of living in the United States and thinking about its its politics and its culture and its pop culture is to not do that. I mean, whether it's something that you're so obviously saying, you know, like, oh, I don't see race or I don't see gender. I just evaluate the person. Right. That's a kind of happy, like way of dealing with it or whether you're not even going that far you're just saying look this is not why do we have to look at the world that way i understand that and i understand that it does not always come from from an ill-intentioned place occasionally it does but the whole reason i do the job i do is because i'm dissatisfied with that view of the united states i think it's actually incorrect i think there's no way to look at the country and its its power structures and its politics without Everything about our everyday, the jobs, the education, early childhood education, paid leave, minimum wage, our health insurance, our infrastructure, everything that we live in this country every day is shaped by policy that is influenced by racial and gendered inequality and that has been made historically nearly exclusively by white men who are a minority population in this country. There is no way that we can say, look, why do we have to talk about this? Why do we have to worry about the representation? And that is not to say, I, am in, I have never, ever made an argument that says you should just vote for or support the black woman over the white man, regardless of the policies they support. That is no, and that's a straw man argument that is often made in response to people worrying about identity in, in, in political representation. I would not even – look, as I said in 2008, as somebody who was already professionally invested in these things, I supported the white guy over both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton because I thought his policies better address the inequities that I'm very interested in addressing. So it's not – to just talk about it doesn't mean – that I am suggesting that the only approach to rectify this is to always support the person who's not the white guy, right? I could very easily support a white guy over any number of, of women and people of color in, the, in 2020. I can see that happening. But I do not think there is a way to have an honest political conversation about this country or how we live, the neighborhoods we live in, the schools we send our kids to, without saying we have to think about how gendered and racial inequality shaped our everyday lives in this country. So you're going to keep on this beat? No, I was thinking of writing about like maybe traffic. <laughs> is there a book coming? <laughs> yeah, there yeah. is actually. I'm assuming it's a Hillary book? No. 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 Well, it'll, I mean, she'll, uh, be, she'll in be in it. it. <laughs> she'll oh, be in it. Oh, we talked about this off here. You want to, want to briefly tease what yeah, the book is about? Uh, yeah, I'm writing a book about... <laughs> It's weird coming off that last rant. Yeah, it's this great. Is gonna seem- it's good. It's <laughs> a good segue. I, uh, I'm writing about women in anger and politics. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> it's weird. I don't know why. Um, yeah, I'm writing a, a book about women in anger, but specifically in terms of politics. It's not going to be all about 2016. It will certainly have reference it's to it. It's out when? Oh, don't ask me that. I'm writing it I know, right I now. Give me anxiety. When it's out, will you come back and talk I to us? I will. Um, I've been wanting to talk to you, as you know, for a long time. I'm glad we made it happen. Thanks so much for having Thanks me. Thanks for coming. Thanks to you guys for listening. If you like this, of course you did because you're listening to the end of the interview. We have lots more of this stuff. You know where to get it. But just in case you don't know, you can get it at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere you can find a fine podcast. You can find this fine podcast. All we ask is that you tell a friend, tell them in person. You can tweet about it if you do Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat. If you, you probably don't do Snapchat if you listen to this. Thanks to our sponsor, TransferWise. Thanks to Digital Media for helping TransferWise sponsor this show. Thanks to Beth O'Connell and Eric Johnson, my producers. 
My editor is Chris Basil. He rocks. If you're listening to this in close to real time, you may have time off next week. Enjoy your time. We are bringing you fresh content, even though it's a holiday. So come back in a week and listen then. See you then.